This is the Author Archive podcast. In this episode, philosophy. Dr. Julian Bagini is a philosopher, and uh, whenever I talk to him, he makes me think with a capital T. I've been reading his new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. If we manage it, Julian, are we going to feel better? That's a very good question, because I think the answer is not necessarily. Um, <laughs> it depends where you're starting from. I'm kind of, I do think philosophy is of practical use. But the thing about philosophy is one of the things it gets us to do, well, two things it gets us to do is one, I think, look at things truthfully for what they are. And secondly, is to reflect upon what our goals and aims are. And if you think that you can just sort of like co-op philosophy to sort of make you feel happy, you're, you're missing the point that um, philosophy may question whether happiness is even the right goal. So I think philosophy sometimes makes you feel bad, sometimes makes you feel confused and all of that. But ultimately, I think it helps us to live a good, good and flourishing life. And so I'd, I'd recommend it from that point of view. But, you know, caveat emptor, it may not all be fun. <laughs> and do you think as a culture we value it because at the end the last sentence is uh, and i love this one in a world which promises everything quickly and easily thinking must be hard and slow we mm. don't really revere that now do we no we don't i mean we say our culture i mean it is what the r is right so there are we're in, um, I mean, England, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in the world, etc. Um, a lot of Europe sort of takes philosophy more seriously as part of its public discourse. In the UK, we haven't really done so. Now, there's been quite a growth in what you might call popular philosophy um, since I started doing it. I, didn't, I wasn't the first person to start doing it, by the way, so I'm not taking credit for that. But I still think the most popular kind of, of pop philosophy is the kind of stuff that at least looks like self-help. I mean, in a way, I'm kind of guilty with that with the title in a way. You know, the title of this book is How to Think Like a Philosopher. It's got that how-to title, which publishers love. And, you know, that that might sort of present the self-help message. So although once you get reading in the introduction, I'm very careful to kind of um, disabuse people of any uh, mistaken ideas they might have about what's to come. Um, I think that philosophy in the sense of that really hard and slow and difficult thinking yeah, but who wants things to be hard, difficult and slow, you know? <laughs> it's not a great USP, is it? No, but the acronym that you um, come to in your book is that top Australian rock band, ACDC. <laughs> now, what does your ACDC stand for? Okay, right. So this is a summing up. The, the point is, if I give you the summing up before um, what comes before, it could, might sound a little bit glib, but never mind, never mind. Here's the sort of this overview. Go on. Uh, well, okay, let's do something else then. Um, we're, <laughs> we're talking, we'll come back to ACDC. We are speaking when the nation, part of the nation, is hugely happy celebrating a coronation. The other part of the nation thinks that this is um, probably not the best way to spend huge amounts of money. So if I'm thinking like a philosopher, how do I look at that at this moment what would a philosopher do well i mean one thing we should say is you know it's called how to think like a philosopher and philosophers think differently of course so my philosophy is it's kind of like the idealized philosopher really that the way the philosopher um should be 
Well, there were lots of things that they could do. Okay, so actually, we will go to the acronym then, ACDC, because this 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 will give us a, a case study, if you like. So, and by the way, I didn't gerrymander it or ACDC. I'd much prefer a word, but I was looking at the things, and it was the thing that leapt out at me. Um, nice in joke for us, sort of people who are in their teens in the early eighties and sort of were into that kind of thing. Um, so, so the first thing is to attend. So that's what the A stands for, attend. Which is interesting because I find that interesting because when you hear about what philosophy is, when most people tell you what it is, they'll normally tell you it's about argument. And you might think the A was going to stand for argument and argumentation. But I think all the best thinkers, not just in philosophy, what they do before they even start trying to draw conclusions is they just pay very close attention to what's going on. And if you take the question about you know how we should be feeling about the monarchy, well, you know, a lot of the time people rush in with their opinions without really having looked carefully at what it is they're getting either upset or enthusiastic about, you know. So on one side, people who are sort of anti, sort of Republican like myself, um, you know, tend to very quickly, all they see is like silliness and outdated uh, feudal kind of uh, ceremonies. And on the other side, all people see is, you know, glory, tradition, people coming together. And people don't really tend to, it's very hard to see what it is on the other side, if you like, that, that people are latching onto, which might have some genuine merit to it. So that's the first thing. And then the C is to sort of um, clarify. And this is often to do with you know, the concepts and terms that we're, we're using. So people might say, oh, well, monarchy is anti-democratic. Well, what is what is democracy? Let's think about this for a minute, shall we? Um, let's get clear about what democracy is, because you know, con is constitutional monarchy actually incompatible with democracy? Um, you know, I, I think it probably is, but, but not as strongly as people might think. So you then do that sort of clarification, and then and then the D is for like to sort of deconstruct, if you like, and that's kind of like often to do with unpicking the arguments. You know, you've looked very carefully, you've tried to understand, you've clarified the terms. And then, you know, people are making certain arguments such that, you know, uh, to have a monarchy in a democratic society is unfair because dot, dot, dot. And you, you try and sort of unpick those arguments, see if they work, see where their strengths are, see where their weaknesses are. And in the final scene, you notice all those three things are actually about analysis. There's nothing actually constructive about them. But um, the, the final C is to sort of, you know, construct or co connect, is to join all the dots. Having done all that, you've got to somehow try and bring it together to form some kind of overall view, which will be sort of, you know, coherent and has benefited from all those stages. So going back to this thing about how we're in a, in a, in a rush, you know, often we want to jump to the conclusion, get to the conclusion quickly. quickly. But, you know, what we should be doing more is taking care along the way. And really, the sort of coming up with our view, our final view, it's the very last stage, which lots of things should come before that. OK, I'll come back. Look, pretend that we're doing Newsnight. Um, mm -hmm. pretend, pretend. So what do you think, Dr. Bugini? Where, in your philosopher's view, who wins the argument? Oh, on the monarchy. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a, I call a soft Republican. I, I think that yeah, the monarchy is, is, is untenable and unjustifiable in a 21st century democratic state. But the point is that what makes for a functioning democratic society, um, in, in a way, this is not the most important thing. The kind of constitutional monarchy we have is a largely figurehead role. It does potentially have some constitutional power. That's why we should get rid of it. 
but you know it's about, it's also about it's about perspective it's like one of the things that people um don't think about enough is is how to properly weight uh, things <laughs> and so although i'm a republican i actually don't think it's, it's by far and away one of the least important issues facing us right now so you know republic which is the the pro uh, anti-monarchist sort of ngo whatever in this country charity I mean, I think I'm listed as one of their supporters, but I'm just not at all active because there are there are other things that deserve our energy. So, yeah. OK, let me throw another one at you. Um, your narrative in the book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, um, there are stories of various philosophers. I knew one, Mary Warnock, who I loved. I thought she was mm. terrific. And I knew the family of a guy called Michael Dummett, um, who you rate as a really good philosopher of language. But, and this is where I fall apart with him, is, but he was such a committed, faith-driven Catholic. Anything that was counter to what the Roman Catholic Church said, he wouldn't have it. Now, come on, you can't do that, can you? Well, no, I kind of agree with that. And by the way, I'm not sure. I, I, I personally, I, I report that he is extremely highly rated as a philosopher of language. I, I'm not personally convinced because, for a start, I can't understand a word he says. I mean, he's famous. <laughs> I mean, he is famously difficult to read, and that's not necessarily a vice. But um, I think I have a line there from Simon Blackburn, one of his colleagues, or, or something, which is, you know. Dummett is um, swimming in philosophical deep waters, but whether he's throwing his life raft or shoving <laughs> us under the water isn't entirely clear. Um, so, <laughs> yes, now he did have this faith position. You're right. The point there is, I think what, that's quite interesting, though, again, because, you know, no matter how smart a person is, they always have some kind of blind spot or some area of life where they just don't seem to be able to apply that. Now, the point about... Dummett and his religious faith was he did, he wasn't writing about areas of faith so in a way it was completely separate if you read all his philosophical works you'd have no idea if he was a Christian or an atheist or anything else so it was kind of irrelevant so he could do the kind of philosophy he did and that not bother him but I do agree that that yeah as, as a kind of a model of a philosopher I don't think it's at all reasonable to sort of just bracket off a part of your of your life and and say that that's going to go beyond rational scrutiny although even that does get complicated because you know sometimes people have very complicated arguments for why it is indeed necessary to do that so in other words let's put it this way you can have rational reasons for um acting in ways that are non-rational so let me give you an example let's say Let's say you, you're the kind of guy who likes to put a flutter on the GGs, right? Yeah. Let's say you're a you're betting man. And let's say that, you know, you go to race courses. And let's say that you, you don't even know how you do this. But when you see the horses in the paddock, you have a feel for which one is going to win, right? Yeah. And you're right. Time and again, you're right. And you have no idea why. You, you, you know nothing about horse physiology or anything. Now, if that were to happen, would you be right to trust your intuition over rational arguments when picking horses? Absolutely. Because the evidence, there's arguments for saying that in this particular domain, your intuitions are a better guide than reason. And I think that a lot of uh, people with a religious faith who are otherwise very intelligent, they have kind of other kind of arguments to say that we have rational reasons for thinking that these matters of ultimate truth cannot be determined by reason and therefore it's justified to justify them by faith. I don't buy that, but 
that's a, that's an argument. And if you if you don't engage with the argument, you can't just say, "Oh, isn't that just being? They're just being silly. They're just being non-philosophical." <laughs> I mean, you have um, said what you believe. I happen to believe the same as you. But um, in your book, you do argue for respect and curiosity for the other person's point of view to an extent <laughs> well to a very large extent i mean you know there are times you, it's not you don't sort of extend that infinite charitable and under charity and understandability you know to people you know um the the point at which people start shooting for example um or even when they start loading their rifles is a point where you may decide um, that the reasoning and being sympathetic has, has reached its its limits, but I think generally speaking, this this is the right way to go. Um, I mean, there are various reasons for this. I mean, John Stuart Mill is one of these people who's always wheeled out as the great supporter of free speech, and there's a good reason for that because he actually was very clear on what a lot of the best arguments were. And the point is this: if we've got if our views are right, we've got nothing to fear by having them challenged in a proper rational discourse by others you know they, they will be they are right and we can prevail and we, we can show that they are right but also you want to test you want to know you're right because you know we we are we do have it <laughs> we like to be right okay so if we have a belief we're very unwilling to acknowledge it might be wrong so we kind of need that challenge we should be pleased that there are challenges and we should try to you know take take them on um but also i think the other point is that Sometimes people get too fixated on a particular disagreement, if you like, and they miss the fact that they agree on so much. And and, and that's the most tragic kind of disagreement. And at the risk of like, you know, I keep putting my head above the parapet very slightly on the on the controversies around trans rights at the moment, because th this really bothers me. I, I can see people on who take different views in that discussion. And there are some extremists on both sides who are unpleasant people but actually a lot of people aren't and it just seems to me quite obvious that in a sane rational world they would be allies because they want the world to be safe for trans people they want them to be able to live their lives as they want to live they just have very specific disagreements about whether or not we can and should treat trans people as the gender they identify with in all contexts, or whether there are some contexts where we have to instead um, treat them according to their uh, biological sex, and even even to even to say there is a debate to be had there is for some people transphobic, right? I, I think this is really sad because I think that this is driving a wedge between people who, until recently, were actually on the the same side of most debates. And why is it? It's partly because people just are not understanding enough they're fixating on the points of difference and they're also attributing kind of motives to that which i think is very unhelpful you know but i've probably probably gone my, my head's probably far enough above the parapet <laughs> to already be shot off so um but in, in that and so many arguments at the moment we seem low on compassion we seem low on empathy. We seem ready to label people as bad when they're clearly not for a for a particular reason. Yeah, I think that's true. The the empathy thing, I, I, I'm slightly wary of putting too much into that because, I mean, there's there's emotional empathy, which is like trying to, as it were, feel what others feel, and there's 
another thing called kind of cognitive empathy, which is trying to understand how they think and, 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 and why they think what they think. And I think we kind of need both. And I think the problem with the emotional empathy thing is that some it, we're not as good at knowing how others feel or as 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 we think we are and also knowing that by itself doesn't resolve debates so i think for example a lot of people if we go back to this um <laughs> this particularly prickly sort of pair um a lot of people will say the key to this is just just be empathetic you know imagine you're a trans person what would a trans person want well, part of the problem with that is they don't all want the same thing, right? I, I've read many, many trans people who say that, you know, uh, one of them said this phrase, I'm a trans woman and I'm a biological male. And those two facts are, you know, they they, they go together. So first of all, they don't all feel the same thing. Um, but secondly, you know, it, are you, then, you then have to be empathetic the other way as well, <laughs> Right. How do you feel if you are a a woman who is, you know, uh, been the victim of of sexual violence, for example? Um, how how would she how would she feel being in a space where there are people who are anatomically male there? So you know, it doesn't solve the debates if you're if you're just asking how you feel. This is important to do. But you've, you've got to go beyond that as well. So it's about you know the kind of understanding we need to extend has to sort of like be a kind of a, a intellectual understanding and engaging with ideas it can't be just oh i feel your pain because then it's whose pain do we, whose pain do we feel what does it mean too many questions are left hanging by that there's another area i want to get into you are known for being a thinker julian when you are sitting at the breakfast table now and this time what are the things that upset you or cause you to think at the moment, I mean, I, I will lead you a little bit. Um, I try, <laughs> I try to be low CO two. I think that um, scientifically, the world is not in a good place, and I try to do something to ameliorate it in a very small way. That's what worries me. What worries you? Yeah, but a little uh, preamble before I answer the question, perhaps give myself some thinking time. Um, <laughs> many years ago, the, the Guardian did this feature at the Hay Literary Festival, and they basically stopped people and said, what are you thinking about right now? And all of them, apart from one, came up with some big issue or something pressing and intellectual. Only one of them, Joan Bakewell, bless her, lovely woman, um, said, right now I'm thinking that I'm really hungry and I need a sandwich or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there's an important point there because, you know, people have this idea that if someone's intellectual in some way, they're always thinking about deep things. And, you know, a lot of the time my brain is full of nonsense and noise and sound and songs, music. You know, there's always a song in my head. Um, but I know what you mean. It's not what I'm actually in front of my mind. What, what's concerning me and bothering me right now? Um, it, to be honest, it's a little bit of a vague sense that, I mean, I've I've never been a fan of the kind of, pessimists who sort of think the world's going to hell in a handcart um you know although steve pinker may go a bit too far the other way i think that you know if you read him he's he's got a lot of you know got a lot of things on his side but i think i'm a bit just a bit concerned that there are too many things going in a bad direction in the world at the moment and you know we've never been able to assume they're going to continue to go in the right way so if you have a combination of like you said the climate change and the disruption that's going to cause. I mean, I'm not a total doomsday 
we're not going to the, the planet isn't going to die and human beings aren't going to be wiped out i mean that's just um you know no no model no realistic model says that but the point is you know that it, it could be very very unpleasant um with much less than that displacement of people fights over resources water wars so all these really deep tensions and we just don't seem to have got hold of it soon enough you know and we do seem to have left it too late to, to stop that and on top of that and perhaps helped by that there are the ways in which sort of like you know more democratic forms of government it's been in retreat there's been a steady you know steve pinker when he wrote his book would be pointing quite accurately to the fact that there may be short-term reverses but over the sort of medium to long term more and more countries are being categorized by freedom house who count these things as as full or partial democracies and for the first time, that number's kind of going down. And you've also got societies which have been, have established democracies, fairly established democracies, like Hungary and um, and uh, you know, Israel and Italy to a certain extent, um, where you've got these sort of populist and more authoritarian people coming in. America, I mean, you, you know, um, Donald Trump. So you put all those kind of things together and it doesn't look great. And on top of that, throw in a few threats like I'm not so bothered about the AI one, but, you know, serious kind of, you know, a pandemic to make COVID look like a picnic, for example, perhaps intentionally caused the firing of nuclear weapons. The firing of a nuclear weapon in anger was something that you and I both sort of um, we grew lived up. through as a daily reality. And then it kind of disappeared. And, you know, it's back. You know, I was just this is one of those upsetting things. One of the most upsetting things about the Ukraine war was actually whether or not we thought it was likely that Putin was actually going to use one of these weapons. The very fact that we had to seriously consider that he might is bad enough. So, yeah, it's that I, this. So this isn't particularly this isn't telling that this is probably most people at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and you mentioned Stephen Pinker. I've spoken to Stephen Pinker when his book, uh, which said, you know, we're in a much better position now. The world is more peaceful than it has been. Um, and it's just not anymore. That has passed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you say about the data on that, but the, the, the other thing to say in his defence is that he never said this was inevitable that it would continue. That's what he was always accused of, that he was had complacent and thought it was inevitable we'd carry on this way. And he thought absolutely not. And one of the reasons that he wrote his books and about enlightenment now and everything was to say that, you know, uh, these are the things which have, these rewards are the result of us adopting a more sort of rational and scientific and considerate empathetic sort of understanding of the world. And that if we don't continue to promote those values, we're not going to continue with this sort of a uh, process. So he wasn't a complacent as people made him out to be, I don't think. One last question. In order for countries to be run logically or you know, with a philosophical reality that's that's good is it is it important that leaders and potential leaders do the simple thing of telling the truth <laughs> oh crikey you know i think so I, 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 over the years i have you know talked a bit and written a bit about integrity truth and honesty both in business and in politics and um i remember giving one presentation to some kind of a European sort of think tank. Um, and it was hosted by some politician in a, a Catalan political party. And she basically just thought I was being completely naive. You know, the idea that we should tell the truth. Because the, 
the, the point is, this is complicated because obviously, do, should politicians tell the truth, everyone's going to say yes, right? Now, so why don't they? And the, the short answer is because people don't actually like the truth, right? And and this is what this is why spin and all these things have become so um, you know so popular. People. So if you go back to the COVID thing, for example, and you actually see why there are times where be, telling the truth directly may not be a good idea. Let's say in the first sort of few sort of as COVID was coming out, that our prime minister had come out and said, um, "We we haven't a clue what's going on. Really, this could be really fucking awful, and we could all be dead soon. Um, we hope not, um, but give us a bit more time. We need to work it out. In the meantime." hide everyone <laughs> you know i mean that would have been you know you, you kind of need someone at that time a certain kind of sugar coating of the truth at least is is, is quite necessary but i think in general it, it's not good i think you have to be truthful and honest i think there there are ways of talking which are you know you could have put that message in a in a, in a calmer way and i think it's in the long run you see the point is i think that the idea that politicians have to be less than fully truthful because otherwise they won't get voted in. I, I, I think the problem is that in the long run, it erodes trust in politics. But to rebuild trust takes time. And I, I have this naive, perhaps optimistic view that a political leader who can really be straight from day one when they're elected as for the leader of their party and continue to be straight could build a reputation for honesty and they would be able to say true things at elections and while governing and be respected for it. But I think a lot of people think that's hopelessly naive. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you one last thing. Um, you are older now than when the first time I interviewed you. I am concerned. As you are too, by the same amount, funnily enough. Funnily enough, yeah. Does wisdom come with age? <laughs> what do you think, Julian? Oh, right. Well, you may, you mentioned ACDC. Should we mention Judas Priest? You don't have to be <laughs> old to be wise, that famous uh, track from British Steel. Um, I, there's nothing inevitable about it, I think. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I do I do think that there are certain things which experience can teach people, which only experience can teach people. But the downside of that is that as we get older, we get more settled and we get more entrenched. And I think to kind of talk about the sort of knowledge or the understanding of older people as wisdom and, and that of the youth as something else is probably a, a false kind of choice. Um, so, I, you know, and I, th I think this is why, again, one of the things I talk about in the book is the need to kind of draw on lots of different sources. And I think the point is, you know, wiser older people listen to young people as well, <laughs> right? Um, they don't just listen to their peers. And they'll have, and they have, and they'll, and, and they'll have seen things that younger people haven't seen. So they'll be able to perhaps spot the, the time, the same mistakes every generation makes, or notice when they're whatever. But they'd also be able to perhaps think, you know what, you're perhaps onto something there. And we do see that. I think we have seen there are parents who have been educated by their children about the environment, or about say animal rights, or even about actually things like sexism and homophobia. Uh, so there's quite a lot that can be learned. So I, I, do, I do think there are certain uh, things that experience gives you true. But I think that we don't want to push that older, wiser thing because I think it's not a simple equation and you're not 
older simply by wiser simply by virtue of being older and in fact a lot of old people just end up with a load of sort of like mad crazy sometimes bigoted or if not just sort of stuck in their ways views <laughs> the book that started this is splendid i read it on a thank you I read it in the sun in Africa, how to think like a philosopher, and it will make you think. Julian Bagina, great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, David. Mm -hmm.